Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Okay, I need honesty. You're not going to want to answer this question if this applies to you, but I need you to tell the truth. Was anybody in this room a teacher's pet? Okay, we got some... <laughs> you know what? Only a teacher's pet would answer that question honestly, right? I'll just be honest too. I had a really hard time with teacher's pets. They were the people in the class who, when they raised their hands, they always got, ant- they always got picked on. They said, oh, yeah, you, yes, Susie, yeah, that's you. And I never got picked. Always the teacher's pet got picked. Anytime a teacher needed a project done, it was always Susie, the teacher's pet. She was always chosen. Anyone, someone needed to come up to the board and do something important, it was always Susie. And then like, even like in between class stuff, this is, this is what really got me. Like in between class stuff, it was the teacher's always, oh, Susie, you're so sweet and clapping on the back and walking and chatting with her. And I got no attention. I got no oxygen because the teacher's pet just gobbled up. You, Teresa, you gobbled up all my oxygen. I got no attention. It's all right. It's all right. And here's why it's all right. Because if, if I'm being really honest, I will admit that the reason I didn't like the teacher's pets is because I wanted to be one. And I wasn't. And it really bothered me. Like when I would go out for sports, man, Like, athletes, you think you're immune to this. You're not. You're coaches' pets. You know, you're the guys who sat on the bench, and you always went in, and you always got played, and the rest of us sat on the bench and, like, got the water when you were the one who was always just the hero, and we're cleaning up dirty socks and jock straps and towels, and you're the one looking like the hero for all the girls. Were any of you coaches' pets? I'm surprised. I thought more dudes would... Yeah, I was a coach's pet. (laughs) Check me out. I'm a little surprised no one admitted to that. So when I became a follower of Jesus, and I began reading about his life and like figuring out what he did and learning about him, I kind of felt like Jesus was a little bit of a teacher's pet. I kind of felt like Jesus was a guy who God did everything he wanted. Like Jesus got everything he wanted from God. All these miracles and stuff happened with Jesus. Jesus was super smart. Everyone wanted to be like Jesus. And I, you know, if I'm being truthful, I felt like Jesus was a little bit of a teacher's pet. Even when it came to the area of prayer, like check this out. We've been in this, this message series called 21 Days of Prayer. And, and last week we talked about this. We talked about how prayer is, prayer is essentially designed for God to stamp his will over ours. That prayer is really less about getting what we want. And it's more about aligning our will and aligning our heart with what God wants. And, and in talking about that, we, we talked about this, this fact that Jesus lived a livable life. That the way Jesus lived, the things that Jesus did, the way, the way Jesus lived is livable for us. We can live that life. And I know that sounds really challenging and really difficult because sometimes we look at our lives and we're like, that's impossible. I, I can't live like Jesus. Especially for some of us in the area of prayer. Because Jesus, when he prayed for something, he always got it. Jesus always got what he wanted from God when he prayed. And, and for me, I mean, my life is not like that. I don't, I don't like sit down for dinner with my kids, you know, with one steak and they'll go, Lord, I pray to you bless this food. And I break it into eight steaks and it just kind of multiplies over and over again. And then I have 12 baskets of steak that go into my fridge left over. God doesn't do that for me. So why not us? Why is it that God did everything that Jesus asked, everything that Jesus prayed for, everything that Jesus wanted, but yet when I pray, it doesn't seem to happen that way. Why not me? Why not us? And I think the way that we answer that question can be, I mean, it can be pretty telling. And I, I think it can lead us to think this, that the life Jesus lived really isn't livable for us. Because that stuff doesn't happen for me. Miracles like that don't happen in my life. 
I don't, you know, I don't do those things. I, when, sometimes when people ask me questions about God, like just this word salad comes out and it makes literally no sense. And I probably have done a better job leading them to worship Satan than Jesus just by like the foolish stuff that comes out of my mouth sometimes. And Jesus had all the right things to say. And I'm like, blah, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not like Jesus. And I, it, so how can I live the life that Jesus lived? The way we think about and answering this question, why, why isn't my life like Jesus? It can lead us to think that a life like Jesus lived is just, it's just not possible for us. It's not livable for us. The miracles, the power, I mean, that's, that's Jesus stuff. I live my life. We live our lives here on earth. We live, live it our way. This stuff over here, it's, it's in the Jesus box, the box of Jesus things that only Jesus can do, the things that are only good for Jesus. I prayed for my grandma to get better when, she's, when she was sick. And she didn't. I asked God to, to pay off my classes, you know, at the end of the semester so that I could sign up for my next course. And, and he didn't. It didn't happen. You know, I asked, my car broke down and everything in my life is around that car. I got to get to work. I got to get to school. I got to drive my kids around. And if my car is broken down, I can't do any of that stuff. Everything falls apart. And I asked God to do a miracle with my car and, and nothing happened. My kids, I pray for my kids every day, and my kids are lunatics. They're insane. I'm like, God, make my kids normal. They're not normal. Why? And I think that sometimes when we look at Jesus' life and we look at ours, it can lead us to believe that the only reason God did those things in Jesus' life was because Jesus was God's teacher's pet, right? So when Jesus lifted his hand, God called on him for the answers. When Jesus asked for something, God said, sure, but... Maybe when we sit in the back of the class and we lift up our hand, we're like, God, I need some attention here. God's attention just really doesn't come to us because we're just not the teacher's pet. Jesus can do whatever he wants, but it just doesn't work that way for us. So is that true? I mean, it, it, it's got to feel true for some of us. I mean, there's definitely been times in my life where it's felt true, I, that, which leads me to believe that for you, it has had to have felt true at times in your life that God isn't doing the same things for me that he did for Jesus when Jesus was here and and if it is true, what does that mean? And if it's not true, how is it not true? And so, we just question, why did God do all the things that Jesus asked? And why isn't God doing the things that I'm asking? So to answer this question today, to wrestle this, I want to tell a story out of the Old Testament. We're going to go old school. But here's why this, this Old Testament story is really relevant to us as followers of Jesus. It's because Jesus would have been really familiar with this story. Jesus would have been very familiar with the hero of this story. Jesus would have known this story in and out, and it probably would have been a story that inspired him, that challenged him, probably a story about a person that, that Jesus wanted to be like. And so because of that, we're going to take a look at this story because it influenced how Jesus lived, it influenced how Jesus was, and it influenced how he prayed. A man who would have been a spiritual hero to Jesus, and we're going to look at the life of a prophet from the Old Testament named Elijah. Now, here's the deal with Elijah. Elijah was, uh, he spoke for the Lord. He was a prophet in the time of really two of the worst monarchs in history, Israel's history. Two of the most evil monarchs that, that ever were in Israel, uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel were awful. In fact, like, even after they were gone, people would refer to them when they were talking about people who were evil. They were like, you're evil like Jezebel. You're evil like Ahab. They were so bad that they were like a curse word to people for how they lived. Ahab and Jezebel, they ruled Israel uh, over, over several decades. And in the time they ruled Israel, they drove out all of the, the key leaders and speakers for God, the people who were leading the people of Israel to follow God. They pushed them out as much as they could. They killed them. They, they sent them into exile. Prophets like Elijah were, were, were living in hiding in caves so they wouldn't be killed. 
And over the course of their, of their reign, they installed hundreds of prophets and priests and prostitutes in the service of the worship to their pagan gods. And so they instilled this whole new process, this whole new religion of pagan worship in Israel. And they, they basically made it an, a new national religion, driving God out of the nation. And so Ab and Jezebel were messed up. They were evil. They, just, they were just did awful, awful things. And in the course of, and, and there's a period in Ahab and Jezebel's reign where there is a three-year famine where there was no rain. It just stopped raining for three years. The land was completely dry. Crops dried up and disappeared. Animals couldn't eat because there was no grass. So animals were dying off. Food was very scarce. And, and it was a very, very difficult time in the history of Israel. And at the end of this three years... This is what Elijah does. And you may be familiar with this story. This is kind of a cool story. Elijah comes back on the scene. He's been in hiding, right, for three years. He's been hiding because Ahab and Jezebel hate him. They got a, a bounty on his head. He's a dead man if he ever shows up. And so he's in hiding for three years. At the end of three years, he pops up and he goes to where Ahab is. And Ahab's like, oh, here you are, my old enemy. You've just popped up. What are you here for? And Elijah says this. He says, I've got a challenge for you. He says, I want to challenge your gods against my God. And so Elijah says this, let's go to the top of Mount Carmel. I want you to bring all the leaders of Israel out. I want you to bring all of the, 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 the key leaders of Israel, bring them with you. And I want you to bring all of the prophets of Baal, your pagan God who you worship. And he says, when we get them out to the top of Mount Carmel, we're going to have a contest. And so Ahab's like, all right, son, we're going to do this thing. I'm sure Ahab's thinking we're going to do it. And then I'll just kill him on top of the mountain in front of all the people of, of Israel. And it's going to be great. And he's going down and I'm going to rule. And it's going to be killer. So they all go up to the top of the mountain, all the, the leaders of Israel, all the, the 450 prophets of Baal that come out there. And then one Elijah, one follower of God standing on top of the mountain. And as everyone gets up there, Elijah steps forward and he says this, I've got a challenge. And here's what I want to challenge your God to. We're going to build two separate altars. One for Baal and one for the Lord. And I'm going to let you guys go first. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to cover those altars in a little bit of water. And then we're going to pray to our gods to light these altars on fire. And when the alt- whichever God burns the altar will prove that they are the real and genuine God. And all the prophets of Baal are like, all right, we're going to do this. There's 450 us, there's one of you. Our God's going to kick your God's butt. Let's do this. And so Ahab's like, all right, my guys are confident. Let's roll. So all the 450 priests and prophets of Baal get up and they get around this altar. They kill a bull. They put it on there as a sacrifice. And they start you know, going, oh, Baal. Oh, Baal, come on. Come on, Baal. Send that fire, Baal. They're probably like, I see them as televangelists. I don't know why. Send that fire, Baal. Come on, Baal. And, and they're praying, and they're 450, and they're just circling around the altar, and they're praying five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. Their throats are getting sore. They get, they're like, I need some bottled water. <clears throat> oh, Baal. Come on, Baal. Come on, Baal. And they're praying. Nothing happens. Story says a couple hours pass. They're still going. Nothing happens. Now they start dancing. Oh, they're probably like, oh, Baal. We praise you, Baal. Come on, Baal. Bring that fire, Baal. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I don't know if they said hallelujah to Baal. I think that's kind of a God word, but it probably happens. They're like, oh, Baal. And they're dancing. You know, they're whipping a nay-nay. They're dabbing. They're like, oh, Baal. Oh, Baal. Oh, Baal. Hours pass. It says this, that like six hours pass. And at this point, Elijah's, he's, he's like, he just starts to get into it. He's like, okay, guys, nothing's happening. He's just getting, he's getting a little sarcastic. He's like, where's Baal, guys? Like, Shut up, Elijah. 
Well, I mean, where's your God? I mean, you've been dancing around the stalls. You've been praying for hours. I mean, is he busy? Is he out? And no joke. I kid you not. You look this up. He says, he says, is he in the bathroom? I mean, maybe he's going to the bathroom somewhere and that's why he's not answering your prayers. Is he constipated? I don't know. Where's Baal? And, and so then the priests and prophets of Baal are so worked up. They're like, oh, we're going to show this guy. They start cutting themselves, ceremonially cutting themselves to bleed for their God. They dance on the altar and they're bleeding. Oh, Baal. Hour passes, hours passes, nothing happens. Until the story says that finally the evening comes and they just, they're done. And there's their altar. It's just sitting there, unburnt, with a bowl on top of it. So Elijah says, okay, nothing happened. Let's try my God. Let's see what happens. At this point, Ahab's like, well, I can't kill this dude now. We're deep into, we're hours deep into this thing. He said our God was sitting on the toilet, okay? We got to see this thing out and just hope that nothing happens. So Elijah, he comes together. He kind of stacks 12 stones around the altar. And he says, this is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's like, because I want to honor God. And he, he builds the kind of stones around the altar. And then he says this. He says, I want you guys to do this. Put the bull on the altar. He cuts it up, puts it up. He says, I want you to take just these, like, these jugs of water. I want you to fill up these pitchers of water and pour it on the altar. I'm like, okay. So they pour it on the altar. He's like, now do that just like four more times. And they're like, all right. They pour it on the altar four more times. Then he says, I want you to dig a trench, like a ditch around the altar. So they dig this ditch around the altar that's just like, I don't know, six inches deep. And they fill that with water too. This altar is covered in water. And there's just a trench filled with water on the outside of it. Sorry, my Siri went off on my phone. <laughs> covered in water. And then Elijah says this, he, he, he sends the people back and he looks up to heaven and he says, okay, he says, Lord, I want you to prove who you are. And he prays, he says, God, prove that you are the Lord and send fire to this altar now. And I kid you not, a flame bursts from heaven, shoots down out of the skies, hits this soaking wet altar. And the story in scripture says this, that it licked up everything, all the water and everything. And all it left was dust in a moment. Now, if I'm one of the priests and prophets of Baal and I got band-aids on my arms from where I've been cutting and like my arm is just swollen from dabbing for hours, I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is bad. And it was bad for them because as soon as that happened, all the people of Israel were like, we screwed up. And Elijah says, yeah, you did. I want you to take all these prophets, all these 450 prophets of Baal, put them to death. And they're like, yeah. And they kill all these prophets of Baal. And the people of Israel who are on the mountain are like, the Lord is awesome. God is, the Lord is God in heaven. And Ahab, the king, he's like, shoot, I wanted to kill this guy. Now I can't look what his Lord did. Now, this story, this contest at Mount Carmel, it's a really well-known story. I think for me, like as I, as I was reading this story, the thing that is most surprising and interesting to me is not so much that like that all of the fire came down from heaven and, and ate up the altar. I mean, that's super cool. But, but for me, I think the craziest thing in this story is where did Elijah get the nerve to call this thing out? Where did he get the nerve to say, I'm just going to do this and God's going to burn this altar and uh, I'm going to show those people. If it was me, <laughs> I would have been like, What if God doesn't do this thing, right? Because I'm not a teacher's pet. Maybe Elijah's a teacher's pet, but I've raised my hand in class and I've asked God to do things like that before and he didn't do it. How in the world did God, did Elijah get the nerve to put God on the spot to do that? I could never 
pull that off. And again, like the only conclusion is that Elijah is like Jesus. Elijah must have been a teacher's pet. And, and I'm going to take Elijah and I'm going to put him in, in the same box as Jesus. So you got Jesus stuff. Then you got Elijah stuff. And then you got my life stuff. And those two boxes, you know, they, they never meet up. Now, thing, before you begin to think that this teacher's pet thing is, is really like the answer to the question, I want to point something out to you. When Elijah prayed to God, there was something in his prayer that is... That reveals really, I think, what is, the, what is a key heart of prayer and is a key reason that God moves in people's lives the way that he does. And it unlocks the answer, I think, to why did God do what Elijah asked him to do? And check this out in 1 Kings 18. I'm going to go back into that story and let's look at Elijah's prayer. It says, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and he prayed this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And then he says this, prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me, answer me so that all of these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. There's a line in the dead center of that prayer that I think is the most revealing line about the power of prayer in our lives and how the power of prayer in Jesus' life and in Elijah's life is available to us. And it's this, when Elijah says, prove that I have done all this at your command. Now, I read that story the first time and I'm like, dude, I would never have the guts to do that. Never, 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 never. Like, I've, like we have prayer teams up front. You know, I've been up praying for people before and, and I, would, I would be so nervous. Like, dude, if you're ever in a wheelchair or crutches, just don't come to me, okay? Because like, I'm going to be like, should I tell that person to be healed? I'm, I don't know. I'm scared. What if it doesn't happen? And like, that's, and I know some of you guys have been in that exact same situation where you're like, I don't know if I should ask for this because if I ask for it and it doesn't happen, I'm just going to be deflated. And how can I believe in God if he doesn't answer my prayers? And here's the answer. Elijah. Elijah wasn't asking God to do something. Elijah was doing something that God asked him to do. Get that. In the contest at Mount Carmel, Elijah wasn't asking God to do something for him. Elijah was doing something that God had already asked him to do. See, Elijah didn't come up with the contest at Mount Carmel. God did. Elijah didn't make that plan up. God did. And God told him what to do. Look at, look at how this plays out immediately after the contest at Mount Carmel. This is just another example of how Elijah prayed and how prayer played out in his life. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. So then, after this all happens, Elijah says to Ahab, he says, Go get something to eat and drink. For I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So there's been a famine for three years, right? No rain for three years. Elijah does this thing. He just rubs it in Ahab's face. And then he says, you know what? Let me just go up over on top of that. Let me rub it in a little bit more because I think I might hear some rain coming. And so then, so he hears that. And then Elijah says this. It says, he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. So the servant went and looked and he returned to Elijah. And he's like, I don't see anything. But this is what Elijah did. Seven times... Elijah told him to go and look. And finally, the seventh time, the servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Here's the one thing that's left out of that passage. It's that every time Elijah sent his, his servant out to look to see if there were rain clouds, that Elijah went back, he got down on his knees, he got down on his face, and he prayed to God. Now, 
what's interesting about this is we know that God told Elijah to do the contest of Mount Carmel. That was God's plan, right? So it would seem to me that then if Elijah said, I think I hear rain, you should go prepare for a thunderstorm, and it hasn't rained for three years, let's follow that through. And let's assume that Elijah said that because God told him that's what was going to happen. So God had revealed to Elijah that rain was coming as well. So what does Elijah do? Elijah prays, but it doesn't happen. He sends a servant to go look. So he comes back, he prays again. He sends a servant to go look, nothing. The servant comes back, he prays again. Seven times. Seven times Elijah prayed that what God had told him was going to happen would happen. And here's, like the, here's a key thing about prayer. The, the power of prayer in Jesus' life and the power of prayer in, in Elijah's life, it wasn't in the prayer. The power of prayer in Elijah's prayer was in the prayer before the prayer and it was in the prayer after the prayer. Okay, follow me on this. The power in Elijah's prayer started in the prayers that he had prayed before in spending time with God where God revealed to him what God was doing. Remember like last week we talked about prayers about God stamping his will, revealing his will to us so that we are in line with what he wants. And so in in Elijah's prayer before the prayer, God spoke to him about what he was going to do. Then there was the prayer, God do this. And then maybe, maybe it took a little time. It didn't happen right away. And then Elijah, knowing what God wanted to do, he prayed after the prayer that God would accomplish his will. Let me break it down for you this. How does this function in Elijah's life and how does it function in our life? This is prayer, right? Prayer starts first with submitting my life to God in prayer. Submitting my will to God's in prayer. That's prayer one. Prayer two is God revealing his will to me in prayer. God revealing his plan to me in prayer. God telling Elijah, the contest in Mount Carmel is what I want you to do. God revealing to Elijah that I'm going to send rain. And then the third facet of prayer that we see that Elijah that plays out in his life is that he then prayed God's will into existence. He prayed to line up his heart to God's will and God revealed his will to him. He prayed that God would do it. And then he continued to pray that God's will would come into existence. See, Elijah wasn't a teacher's pet. Elijah was the teacher's partner. And here's the key point about prayer. Get this. Lock this into your heads. Prayer produces partnership with God. God wants to partner with you. He wants you to partner with him in his mission, in his ministry, and in your life. God wants you to come alongside him, to to get on board with his plans, his purposes, his will. And when you do that, when you you get into that sidecar on God's motorcycle and you become his partner, then everywhere you go with God steering, you you are seeing God accomplish and do the things that he's always wanted to accomplish and always planned to purpose in your life. And there's no such thing as God's teacher's pet. Because Jesus, Jesus was God's partner. Jesus operated in perfect partnership with God, in perfect surrender to his will, in praying that that his will would become God's will, in praying that God would reveal his will to him, and then in praying that God's revealed will would come into existence. See, Jesus, man, Jesus didn't get what he wanted from God. God got what he wanted from Jesus. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't just Ask God to do the things that Jesus wanted. Jesus was doing the things that God wanted. And that's why all of those things happened in Jesus's life. And that's exactly why Jesus's life is totally livable 
for us today. Look at, just look at this in Jesus. When, when our prayer life, when, our prayer, when we fully develop the ability to hear what God ha- has asked us to do, that's when we become real partners with God in the same way that Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't do, or God didn't do all that Jesus asked. Jesus did all that God asked. We looked at these last week, John 5, 19. I tell you the truth. The Son, Jesus, can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus said, I'm literally only going to do what I see the Father doing. I'm only going to do what he asked me to do. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus speaking, to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And we talked about this last week too. Jesus literally died on a cross. It was not his plan. He did not want that to happen. He asked God to take that cup from him. But he stepped into it. And he obeyed because he said this, I'm not here to do what I want. I'm here to do God's revealed will. And then John 14, 31. But so the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. You may have a prayer life and you feel frustrated. You feel left out because you're asking God to do things and he's not doing those things. And I would challenge you to rethink what prayer is and rethink how prayer functions in your life. Because prayer is not about giving God your laundry list and then expecting him to fill it. And when he doesn't, we doubt who he is and we doubt what he's capable of. God is bigger than that. And his plans are bigger than that. God has an eternal perspective on your life. And you may see in front of your life a a job that you don't like. You may see school that's difficult and frustrating. You may see a bank account that's too empty. You may see relationships that are broken. God sees beyond those things. He sees the eternal perspective of your existence. And he knows this, that if you will allow your will to align with his, that he can reveal his plans and purposes to you. And that when you begin to align your plans with his, and you begin to obey like Elijah did in challenging 450 prophets of Baal. Now, I guarantee you this. If God revealed to me that I need to do a challenge like that, I would probably say, I got, one more time, what's that? Can you confirm that 10 more times through 10 different people and then send me an email and then maybe some skywriting, okay? Like, just write it in the clouds. I just need to be certain. I guarantee you Elijah is not like, okay, Lord, let's do this thing. I promise you, when God revealed his will, Elijah was, was terribly scared. But he obeyed and he stepped out into God's plans and purposes. And then he continued to pray those things in existence. And when he prayed them, how did he pray? He says, God, I pray that you would show the world that what you revealed to me already in prayer is true. And then he prayed it into existence. He prayed it into happening. He put down his list. And he said, God, give me your list. And he prayed God's list into being. And the thing is, when you're praying God's list into being, God's going to make it happen. Because when God sends you to buy groceries, he's going to make sure they're in stock. Because it's what he wants. And he's God. And he can do that. I challenge you and encourage you When you think about your life, can you say, like Jesus, that you do exactly as the Father does? When you look at your life, can you honestly say that you, every morning, that you put down your will and you say, Lord, your will be done and your kingdom come in me. Whatever you purpose for my life, let it be done. Are you intent on discovering God's plans for your life and then praying them into existence? Even when it's hard, Are you intent on discovering and praying God's will into existence when it means that you need to change? When it means there might be things that you need to let go of, that you need to sacrifice in your life? 
Are you willing to let go of those things in prayer so that you can see bigger miraculous things happen in your life in prayer? Are you willing to say yes to God? Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to see him move in your life? Do you want to know his will and to understand clearly what he wants you to do? It's simple. Submit to God in prayer. Listen to God in prayer. And then pray what you hear from God into existence. Those three things will allow you to walk in partnership with God and see miraculous things that you never thought you could see before. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for every person in this room and I thank you, Lord, for what you're speaking to us about prayer. God, I just confess, Lord, we we are people. And Lord, we can't help but look at our needs and look at the circumstances and situations in our lives and, and know that, God, there's things that we need and know that there's things that we want. And we can't help but believe that the way that we want things done is the best way. And I ask for us, Jesus, that you would help us as we pray to submit to you first. And as we submit to your will, God, I pray that you would clearly lay out your plans and purposes for our lives. That the miraculous things that you begin doing in us, the miraculous things you begin providing for us, the miraculous things you've been doing in other people's lives through us would be birthed in the voice that you're speaking to us when you're speaking your will and your plans. And Lord, I pray that you'd move us from being a people who are asking you to let our will be done. And I pray that we would become a people who are praying for your expressed will that you've shown us, that you've spoken to us, that we become people who are praying for that to come into come into existence because I know that when we do that it will. Lord, I thank you. I praise you for all that you're doing in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.